Welcome once again to Lato's Law. Here's Steve Lato. I had a lot of people send me this story, and believe it or not, when I first saw it, I thought it might not be true. I actually waited till it got picked up by other news organizations before I was going to go with the story. And the reason is, is this is such an outrageous story. In the nine years I've been doing my shows here on YouTube, this is up there as one of the wildest and craziest stories and I, I'm, I'm still kind of at a loss for words on this one, but I will actually probably be doing a little bit of a longer video here, and you'll understand why. The headline from The Guardian, The Guardian newspaper, the headline, Police Raid Local Kansas Newspaper Office and Homes of Reporters. So the police in Kansas, upset at something in the newspaper, raided the newspaper office and the homes of reporters. And they didn't just walk in and say hello and walk out. Oh, no. Oh, no. So Michael Sonata wrote this. Local police in Marion, Kansas, conducted a raid on the offices of a local newspaper, as well as the homes of the publishers and reporters. The owner and publisher of the Marion County Record told the Kansas Reflector that the city's entire five-officer police force and two sheriff's deputies conducted the raid which included the seizure of computers, cell phones, and reporting materials. So if you were a reporter for this newspaper, they would come to your house and take your stuff, including your computers and your cell phones. Now, it might be the computers came from the office of the uh, newspaper, cell phones came from the reporters, but the point is, if you came and took my cell phone, I'd be a little bothered by that. So the publisher said, The raid and seizure stemmed from a confidential source leaking sensitive documents to the newspaper. And, of course, he criticized the seizure, comparing it to seizures conducted by repressive government regimes. Last week, a local restaurant proprietor had police remove the Marion County record reporters from an open forum held by the U.S. Congressman Jake LaTurner. The congressman's staff apologized as they had invited the press. So according to the publisher, a confidential source leaked evidence that uh, someone had been convicted of drunk driving and continued using their vehicles without a license. But the paper never published anything related to it, as they suspected the source may have been relaying information that came from divorce proceedings, and they wanted to track down exactly where it came from, and they hadn't reported it yet. The Kansas Reflector reported that, here's the quote, police notified Newell, who then complained at a city council meeting, that the newspaper had illegally obtained and disseminated sensitive documents, which isn't true. Her public comments prompted the newspaper to set the record straight in a story published on Thursday. The paper added that Newell admitted to the drunk driving arrest and driving with a suspended license. And by the way, those things should all be public records. If somebody was uh, drunk driving and arrested, you'd think that somebody could find something that would back that up. But then was uh, Friday when the raid and the seizures happened, authorized by a search warrant that alleged identity theft and unlawful use of a computer. The seized materials included publishing and reporting materials the newspaper relied on to publish their next edition, and they are not given a time frame for when all this stuff would be returned. So apparently, they told a magistrate, we need a, uh, a search warrant because we want to seize information about what they're about to publish what they're about to publish. And um, that, of course, is the most uh, weak argument you can make. 
Because you can claim that somebody said something about you bad in the past, but to say they're about to say something bad about me in the future, um, (laughs) that's not how it works. The Kansas Reflector reported the search warrant signed by a Marion County District Court magistrate appears to violate federal law that provides protections against searching and seizing materials from journalists. There is a federal statute. I looked it up. It's lengthy. And now there are exceptions. They're very, very unusual. But I can let you know right now that I've seen disputes break out between newspapers and law enforcement. And I've seen it before. The law enforcement approaches the newspaper and says, look, you guys clearly have a source, and we need to know who the source is. Newspaper goes, we're not going to give it up. And what you do then is you go to court and you ask a judge to order someone to testify. And then they'll hold a hearing to determine whether or not that's correct. And I've seen it before where they've actually had that hearing. And a reporter comes into court and is asked questions about their story and answers some questions but not others. And I've seen it before where a judge says, you know, I'm not going to force him to answer that question. I've also seen it, however, where a judge said, I am going to force him to answer that question. And a reporter says, I'm not going to answer it anyways. I don't care. I'm not going to. I will, I will go down with the ship, but I'm not going to give up a name of a source. And I've actually heard of reporters being jailed before. And as strange as it's going to sound for me to say it, that's the way it's supposed to be. A court is supposed to tread very lightly. But issuing a blanket warrant that you can just go in and shut down a newspaper is wrong. The law requires law enforcement to subpoena materials. So they'll actually say you can drop a subpoena on them and say, uh, we want any information you've got in writing from that source or any information you got about that source, and then the newspaper can go into court, and if they want to, they can challenge the subpoena. The uh, magistrate did not respond to requests to comment for the story or explain why she'd authorize a potentially illegal raid. And uh, the storm that's coming, I almost said another word, the storm that is coming to Marion, Kansas, is going to sweep up that magistrate. Now, the magistrate, of course, probably won't like, lose her job or anything, but there's going to be a lot of people Looking at this going, you, you signed a warrant now to do what? The Marion police chief did not respond to a request for comment. Probably didn't think this would make national news or international news. Press advocates have condemned the raid as an infringement on the freedom of the press, which you'll recall is in that pesky little bill of rights, freedom of the press. An attack on a newspaper office for an illegal search is not just an infringement on the rights of journalists, but an assault on the very foundation of democracy and the public's right to know, said Emily Bradbury, executive director of the Kansas Press Association, in a statement to the Kansas Reflector. This cannot be allowed to stand. The chairperson of the National Newspaper Association added in a statement on Facebook, newsroom raids in this country receded into history 50 years ago. Today, law enforcement agencies by and large understand that gathering information from newsrooms is a last resort and then done only with subpoenas that protect the right of all involved. For a newspaper to be intimidated by an unannounced search and seizure is unthinkable in an America that respects its First Amendment rights. Again, the First Amendment popping up there. So I read uh, a bunch of different versions of this story. And a lot of people were actually saying things like, I've never heard of this before. This doesn't happen. And as the one guy pointed out, that it may have happened up to 50 years ago. And believe it or not, I wrote a book in which I talked about it happening over 100 years ago. And in fact, this year is the 110th anniversary 
of the Italian Hall disaster. In fact, on the set, I've got a block of wood from the Italian Hall. For the few of you who don't know, in 1913, there's a miners' strike in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. During that strike, they held a, uh, they held a party for the children striking miners on Christmas Eve. At that party, somebody ran into the hall and yelled fire to break the party up. And in the ensuing confusion, 73 people died, 60 of them children, half of them were Finnish. Big, big deal in the Finnish community. I, of course, am of Finnish descent. So I wrote a book called Death's Door. This is the first version of the book, Death's Door. It later came out in a second, thicker edition. And I have to point out to you that one of the changes is the subtitle of the book. The first edition subtitle is Death's Door, The Truth Behind Michigan's Largest Mass Murder. I used the word murder to describe what happened there. I believe that the person who yelled fire did so recklessly, and uh, that would have equated to a form of, of murder, possibly second degree, maybe manslaughter. But the point is that people died due to the results and actions of, an, of another bad actor. Okay. So the community up there was, of course, in an uproar after the Italian Hall disaster happened. And there was a lot of sadness because 73 people died. Uh, there was a lot of anger, and there was a lot of confusion because there were hundreds of people in the hall that night. Many of them spoke different languages. And so you should know that in that community, there were several newspapers. There was the Calumet News, the Daily Mining Gazette, and a newspaper called Tuomis. Tuomis. And I can't say the word right because I don't speak Finnish. But they were a Finnish newspaper. And Tuomis, uh, translated, means roughly the worker or worker. And it was a, a working man newspaper, and it was considered radical by, by most uh, middle Americans. But they, of course, were a Finnish-language newspaper. And by the way, there were other Finnish-language newspapers up there. But they spoke to people who were at the hall that night and said, what happened? And a couple common themes started coming out. And a lot of people believed that the man who yelled fire was working for the mines as a strike breaker. So if a strike breaker had been the one who yelled fire, it would have been mine management who had been behind this. Obviously, they didn't set out to kill people that way because you couldn't really plan that. But if you send somebody in to do something crazy and they do it and people die, you, you might be in trouble for that. So the newspaper published a special edition. And um, the sheriff must have read the articles or someone finished told him about them. He requested a local justice of the peace named Eichern to issue warrants for the arrest of the reporters and editors of Tuomis. On the charges of publishing material to incite a riot, most troubling, he claimed, was that the article had accused Cruz's deputies of murder. But actually, the article had said something to the effect that deputies, and these are not official sheriff's deputies, they're people who've been deputized as strike breakers, uh, something to the effect that deputies at the doors of the hall prevented the egress of people contributing to the disaster. Uh, many people had made that charge, but Cruz thought, well, in response to that, I will shut the newspaper down. Uh, Cruz's men appeared at the offices of the newspaper on Saturday, December 27th, and of course the event happened on the 24th, and arrested four men they found there. They returned the following day and arrested another. In all, the justice issued 20, 20 warrants for employees of Tuomis or others interested in the publication of the Tuomis. And by the way, the men could not post the bond of $1,000 cash that was required in 1913, and they were all jailed. And that puts the newspaper out of business. So if you go back and want to discover what happened in 1913 at the Italian Hall, 
one source of information is all of the newspaper coverage. And, and so I've pointed this out, and I pointed it out in my two books, is that there's a spectrum of news coverage. And it, it can be viewed as a political spectrum. The, the far left, like Tuomi's, and, and the far right, like the Daily Mining Gazette. The Daily Mining Gazette was very, very favorable to the mines. So the day after the disaster, they published and said, we'll never know what happened. Obviously, this can never be solved. The investigation hadn't begun yet, but we'll never know who did it. But, of course, one of the problems with the Tuomi's coverage is, and I'll put a better version of that up on the screen, but the headline says 83, they got the number wrong, murdered, murdered. And the use of the word murder, the sheriff went to a magistrate and said, that's going to cause a riot. Now, the amazing thing about this is there was no riot. But that's what you do when you want to shut down the opposition. And I, I, I don't want to look like I'm moving towards hyperbole here, but we've heard of this in other situations, primarily in other countries, where somebody gets in power and there's opposition to them, publishing editorials, stories in the newspaper. They could be publishing the truth, where somebody goes, I don't like it. It makes me look bad. Go shut them down. And so... The people who drafted our Constitution and our Bill of Rights recognized that the freedom of the press is one of the most important things in our country that allows us to participate meaningfully in what's happening here. And so if there's a reporter and a newspaper covering a story uh, and someone doesn't like it, you, you don't shut the newspaper down. And so now... Just to play devil's advocate, somebody's going to say, but Steve, let's suppose that the newspaper actually was doing something like illegal. Let's, 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 let's stretch it here. Let's, they're, they're doing something illegal, and they've got this information, and they're going to use it illegally. Well, you serve them with a subpoena. And what the subpoena does is it makes them come into court before a judge, and then the person who claims they're doing something illegally can say, judge, Look what they're doing. Look what they've done. Look, And then the judge can go, okay, let's take a look at this now. And let's, let's see if further action is required. Understanding that the First Amendment is so important that we should tiptoe around it. And that's what you do. But dropping search warrants and sending in people to seize stuff and shutting a newspaper down is, again, I'll use the word, draconian. It's, it's such an extreme action. And so I'm hoping right about now that other people are as outraged by this as I am. And I'm hoping that the clamor that arises over this weekend from this event, I frankly, I, didn't, I don't know where Marion, Kansas is. I've probably never been there. Probably, because if I had been there, it didn't make an impression, but I don't think I've been there. I don't, I don't care. I, it, it could be Atlas, Michigan. Okay, it could be Beersford, South Dakota. It doesn't matter. It is a newspaper in America, and they publish local news, and somehow they've angered the wrong people, and the police have come in and shut them down. And it reminds me of what happened back in 1913. And, and by the way, history has judged the people in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, very, very harshly. 
Because right now, when we talk about the strike, people who know, we actually joke about the sheriff as being a buffoon. He was a buffoon who would do the dirty work for the mines. But the sad part is, the uh, people who were arrested, they eventually just let him go. But there were other people arrested during the strike who were enemies of the mine, some of whom were, oh, I don't know, charged with murders they didn't commit and locked up, being convicted for murders they didn't commit. And that's, again, something that we know happened. And that's because there were people in power who were so interested in their financial interests that they had to get certain people out of the way. And, and so if you, if you arrest a Finnish labor organizer and say he signed a confession in graduate-level English when the man doesn't speak English, but we had witnesses who saw him sign that, even though it's not his signature. Um, yeah, you can convict that guy. Find a jury of people uh, in another county where there aren't so many Finns. And, oh, by the way, that's what they did. They moved the murder trial to another county and put it in a community where the jury wouldn't be composed of all those Finns, those pesky Finns. So this is one where you look at it right now and you go, okay, the newspaper here um, is in the right. The police are in the wrong. The magistrate has got some questions to answer. And like I said, I don't know if this will go on in history the way that the raid on the Tuomi's office did because it happened so close to the Italian Hall disaster. But I suspect that this story is going to be talked about in journalism classes going forward. And uh, this has the makings of a very, very large story. And one of the reasons is, is that every newspaper in North America and every news outlet, all the ones in the U.S., have got to look at this and go... That could be us. Now, would the police raid NBC News in New York? Of course not, because they know that they would not get away with it. But the local police in Marion, Kansas, thought they could get away with it. And hopefully they won't. So it's a horrible story. But it's important that we talk about it. Important that we're aware of it. And I will update you on this, because I find this story just outlandish. And I'm trying to be nice here with the, with the adjectives. So Michael Sinato wrote that for The Guardian, widely reported. Questions or comments, put them below. Let's talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you for watching Leto's Law. Have you ever imagined a world without hypothetical situations?